All right. Uh, today's readings are Ezekiel 20, 40 through 44, and Galatians 1, 1 through 12. They can be found on pages 780 and 1074 of the Bibles next to you on your seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. For on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord, there in the land the entire house of Israel will serve me, and there I will accept them. There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts, along with all your holy sacrifices. I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will be proved holy through you in the sight of the nations." Then you will know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the land I had sworn with uplifted hands to give you to your ancestors. There you will remember your conduct and all the actions by which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves for all the evil you have done. You will know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, and not according to your evil ways and your corrupt practices. House of Israel declares the sovereign Lord. This is Galatians 1, 1 through 12. Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission, nor by human authority, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let that person be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let that person be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win human approval or God's approval, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any human source, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we come to you in this time, we come from different places, different stories, different experiences. And um, we may come with a certain degree of um, just struggle and trouble in our life this week. We might come with sadness, grief, experiencing loss and confusion. And others of us come from a place of joy, gratitude, experiences in our life have, have solidified your goodness, perhaps recently. And it's in this mixture of experiences and journeys, no one of them the same, that we come, we listen, and the truth is we sit here, all of us, whether we're admitting it or not, all of us are a mess. All of us are more broken than we want other people to know. And your story that is so invitational that we just long for it to be true, your story of Scripture is that you move towards 
broken and failed and imperfect lives. You make the first move, in fact. And you've done that through your son. So that even though we're more of a mess than we care to admit, and you see that mess, the truth is through Christ that we are more loved and accepted than we ever could dream. Help us now as we explore your love in the gospel to taste and see how good and how loving you are, our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week's question of the week was, um, had to do with good news. What messages does the world promote around us that are good news? Or what are we told will make the world a better place? And um, I love, always love reading an answer or two that you guys gave to that question. And you can also find these often leaked out throughout the week on our, our Twitter or Facebook page. So social media kind of rolls with this conversation. And somebody said, we are told, or what we are, what, no, this is what they said. They repeated the question first. What are we told will make the world a better place? The Democrats have won. The Republicans have won. The war is over. Oh wait, that other war is over. We will now have peace. We will solve global warming. The UN is saving the world. The minimum wage is being raised. The Kardashians are banned from TV and the internet. <laughs> there, there will be no more religions. So this is a quick list of all the world's messages of good news. Think about that. Think about what, it, what are some of the messages that float around you and maybe which ones do you kind of buy into as true? And you say, yeah, that is good news. I buy into that, you know. The good news is, what is it? The good news is you can earn your parents' love by getting good grades. The good news is you can finally feel good about yourself if you just lose about 20 or 30 pounds. And, well, okay, maybe just a smidgen of plastic surgery. The good news is if you, if you get a spouse, all your problems will go away. Right, married people? Right? The good news is if you have a baby, you know, you'll be finally happy. The good news is if your baby gets into the right school or the, the right uh, high school, or the right college, or the right grad school, you'll be happy and life will be good for them and so it'll be good for you. That's the good news, right? The good news is if you just accept yourself and increase your self-esteem, all of your struggles will go away. The good news is if you bump yourself up an income bracket, you'll finally be satisfied. You won't be as agitated and longing for things. You'll finally make it. The good news is if you come to church more often and volunteer to work in the nursery and compliment my sermons, God will be happier with you. Maybe that last part, I don't know. The good news is, if you're kind and compassionate, just all the time to everyone you meet, you just, just be kind and compassionate. You can hold your head high and know that you're okay. You're right with the world that maybe in your way of thinking, God is happy with you then. What's the good news? What's the good news? And of course, with the good news, we're, we're stealing a little bit from the, the main word that we're talking about, gospel, because gospel is best described as good news. It's kind of what it means. And in this passage, you notice it's really an intense passage. And it starts out strong. The Apostle Paul lists, says the word gospel about five times in the span of four verses between 6 and verse 9. Someone's calling you to, and you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel. 
at all. And some people are trying to pervert the gospel. But if uh, someone comes and preaches the gospel, you know, other, another gospel, let them be cursed. It's gospel, 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 gospel. And in some ways, doesn't Paul, the writer of this, he seems pretty irritated. Um, and there's signs, even greater signs as you look at it. Even literarily, in the way he writes this letter, he skips out on convention that he uses in the other letters and he intentionally does not have a thanksgiving portion that he launches into right at the beginning. Which, if you read some of the other letters he writes, it's, it's always there and it's always effusive in talking about the good things he's hearing about these people and how he's encouraged by this and that and their faith. And here, where that should be, he says, he starts with the words, I am astonished! instead of a thanksgiving portion. He's a little bit upset. And then this double curse language in verse 8 and 9. He's upset. I don't know if it makes a whole lot of sense to all of us that he is. One writer puts it really well in describing kind of how we view what he's doing here and how it doesn't sit quite well, but also this exposes why it is a big deal. This writer says, what, what, what was it that gave rise to the stupendous polemic of the epistle to the Galatians? To the modern church, the difference would have seemed to be a mere theological subtlety. About many things, the Judaizers, which is a technical word for the people Paul is kind of frustrated with, the Judaizers were in perfect agreement with Paul in many things. The Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Without the slightest doubt, they believed that Jesus had really risen from the dead. They believed, moreover, that faith in Christ was necessary to salvation. But the trouble was... They believed that something else was also necessary. They believed that what Christ had done needed to be pieced out by the believer's own effort to keep the law. From the modern point of view, the difference would have seemed to be very slight, hardly worthy of consideration at all in view of the large measure of agreement in the practical realm. And yet this author makes his case, the author's name is J. Gresham Mackin, says... Basically, that if Paul and others throughout history wouldn't have taken issue with this, he says the Christian church wouldn't exist today if Paul didn't take issue on exactly this point. In other words, this kind of seems like a technical little thing, but actually super important, crucial, central core type thing that Paul is having an issue with here today. I think we get at it really well if we tap into a little bit of what the word gospel kind of has in its connotation. It's a borrowed word. It's a word from the culture of the day of the first century and dressed up to kind of bring clear to us what it means what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so the word originally had to do with a message that comes. Picture this. It's like someone coming into the village in a kingdom and saying, Hear ye, hear ye. These events have now occurred far away on the other end of the kingdom. Perhaps the news was, victory has been won on the battlefield against all our enemies, and we are now at peace, and this this whole kingdom now will settle down into a new era of peace. So go therefore and live in this news. Live as if this news is true. And the person goes on to the next town. That's, That's... The gospel coming to town, that's the good news being declared. An event has happened. It is true now for the whole realm. It is true for you. It's news. And notice when you look at it that way, when you consider that background, it's not a contingent prediction. 
you know, friends, this is going to happen as long as you, you know, go grab your sword and go to battle. It's not, you can help achieve and activate this victory. It's not even that. And so in the Christian story, the good news is after Jesus, his journey goes to the unexpected place of suffering in the cross and then the surprise of the empty tomb, he has risen. The good news goes forward. And what, are, what is the church? What did those early apostles realize had happened? What did Jesus explain? What had happened? That the tired, alienated humanity, the tired humanity who's alienated with each other and with God, humanity that's violent and greedy and we love to bend the truth, that we've now been officially redeemed. That the alienated ones have been reconnected. I wonder if we could get the back door shut, John, just for the traffic. Alienated ones have been redeemed. Runaways, think of it like runaway children who've disrespected the family and gone their own way have been chased after and brought lovingly home and welcomed back. And that has happened. (laughs) That... Any sort of guilt or fingerprinting that we finger pointing, not printing. Different message perhaps. <laughs> finger pointing. Any any measure of guilt or finger pointing and that we would worry about about God calling us home. The ledger, God's ledger is shut through his son Jesus on the cross. The welcome home is complete, unconditional. And ready for you to take part of. Hear ye, hear ye. This is what has been done through Jesus Christ. Done. Accomplished. Not contingent on your devotion. On your loyalty. Not waiting for you to press the big red activation button. Because otherwise it's not, there's not enough power there for it to be true already. It's done. And so the, um, the folks who have come into the region of Galatia and all the churches have been pretty diligent about following in on the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul came in and shared this good news, this done, this accomplished, this new amazing thing that settles your life. These other folks have come in and they've, well, quite, quite frankly, they've tried to stir up a little more and agitate your life and say... Um, well, I wrote this down, basically. This is, this is what it, I imagine they, uh, they sounded like as they came in. And from the letter, I think this is pretty true from what we know in this book. Now, you're going to have to forgive Paul. I mean, he's such an earnest and sincere teacher, and we love him to death. You know, don't get me wrong. There are just a few things that he kind of skips over that we, we definitely don't want to miss. You know, we want to... Keep these boundary markers between Gentile and Jew. We want to make sure we put the things in place to make sure that God's grace in your life is fully activated. I mean, Paul's a good guy, and he's a great guy for getting folks in the door and get things up and running, but now it's time for real meat and potatoes. It's time to move on and get real sustenance, a real framework, a higher octane kind of spirituality. 
It's time for, on the, on the foundation of the gospel that Paul brought to you, it's time for us to, we've got to build some walls now and, and build a structure on top of it to keep in the good and keep out the bad. In fact, you know, you've got to love Paul, but he's, he's not even really a part of the accepted inner circle. You know, as last time we were hanging out with, um, oh, it was uh, James and John and Peter, um, you know, I walked away from that meeting and realized, you know, Paul wasn't even there at the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and he wasn't even there at the foot of the cross or the empty tomb or the hill of ascension. And, you know, I mean, just to say, I, I, we, can, we can forgive Paul for not really catching all of this stuff from Jesus. He's not a real apostle. Do you notice how the Paul can't even wait to launch into these issues, even already in the first words, in the salutation. He's saying, Paul, an apostle, sent not with a human commission or by human authority, but by Jesus. I mean, he just immediately is like, let me tell you about my apostleship that these guys are challenging. And so essentially in the end, what you have from this Judaizing group, or it's also called the circumcision group, um, of Christians who still say, no, we have to make sure these works are in place in order to be really in. What you have going on is they're basically stirring up the settled nature that has been offered of the Christian faith through the gospel. And that's really, if you want to kind of get into where the gospel needs to land in your life and even have a barometer for how much is it connecting with my real life? It really does have to do with the difference between agitated and settled in areas of your life where you see, where you see agitation. Everybody's got their unique brand and flavor of agitation. You know, how are you agitating? For some people, it's, I mean, it can be so different. For one person, it's their, it's their private little agitation in a corner at home when no one's looking. And other people, you see it, they wear it out. On their, it's in their loud voice and their conflict and their anger and it's, it's everywhere and that's how they express it. Where's your agitation? You know, maybe you're just troubled. Maybe you have worry. Just repetitive worry. It just keeps coming. It's just there always. It never goes away. Worry, worry. Maybe you have regret. You look back on events, on things you've done, and you regret. And it's painful, and you can't get over it. It just keeps coming forward and presenting itself as an accusation in your life. Regret. Maybe you have great discontentment over the situations in your life, the circumstances, and it never goes away. Maybe you have sadness and grief, which are normal, but they, they don't seem to, it doesn't seem to fade like it should. It has power over you. Maybe you have anger that's disproportionate to what really is going on in your life and you sense it's a little out of whack maybe you're tense about quality you know you're this unrelenting perfectionist and everyone around you is kind of like on eggshells because of it or maybe you just deal with fear are you afraid of something afraid oh you know i haven't always been perfect so what if i'm you know what if this happens because of that happened and you're living in fear what's your agitation for some people it's their jumpy in conversation you know, I've got to get my opinion in. Or I, I want to finish your sentence. I'm just jumpy. I'm edgy. You know, some people, it's control. I control people. I control my time. Uh, some people are so demanding of their spouse or their parents or their kids. Or do you just need to vent? You know, good old-fashioned folks would have called it gossip. But you say, you know, I just need to vent again about this person in my life. I was venting. Where's your agitation? Are you aware of it? Maybe it's your busyness. Maybe it's a life filled with noise and clatter. 
and clamoring. Do you, are you aware of your agitation? Maybe it's financial stress. Agitation. Wherever that agitation is in your life, the news of, of what Jesus has done, not just privately for you, but for privately for you and for the world, is like news that settles all that agitation because the authority of God is in all areas and what he has done is making its way into all areas regardless of your per- perfect working it out. Do you have that kind of confidence? That is a confidence in God that settles agitated areas of your life. It's going to take years for some aspects of our agitated wiring to kind of slowly let things. It takes a long time. But is it happening at all? The Judaizers were coming in and trying to agitate religious agitation and add some rules that will really get us in the realm of can we tell who's in and who's out and who can really be assured and they were basically saying Jesus plus Jesus plus and then you fill in the blank do you have that Jesus plus in order to be right with God in order to be comfortable in order to be finally at ease I have to have Jesus plus this and the math of the gospel is that Jesus plus anything is always a negative the math of the gospel is that more, you say, oh, Jesus is good, but we need more. The math of the gospel is that's always going to be less. And yet we love, we're, I, don't want, I, I don't want to make you feel like you're the only one or something if you do this. We all do this. We all love to find an alternate salvation strategy, and it's a self-salvation strategy. That's what we prefer. We're the ones who, when the news comes to town that the victory has been won, now villagers live in this news of peace because the victory, the enemy is destroyed, and we get together and we go, all right, tomorrow morning you get the shield, you get the sword, and let's go win this victory. <laughs> I mean, because what does that do? It, and we do that spiritually, and what that basically does is it says, you're not even, you're invalidating the very victory that's already yours. So you're actually settling for less. It feels like more. No, I'm going to add to this. I'm going to make sure we've got the victory. And so the testimony of um, so many people over, over the centuries with the gospel is that once this clicks, once there's a sense of this news really becomes the news that settles into the center of your life and you say, now this is my anchor through which all problems and agitation are processed. You know, this is the new anchor that directs everything. There's, this, there's these descriptions of the kind of settled peace that starts to come. I want you to hear a few of them. In fact, several of them, they start with a couple of centuries ago, some Christians were getting together and trying to figure out what the Christian faith is all about. A couple of their names were Charles Wesley and John Wesley, and they, they were, had this habit of reading this, the Galatians commentary by Martin Luther. And not even just the commentary, the preface by Martin Luther. And one of the men, who was apparently the first in this group in the early 18th century, to have the aha moment was a man with a, from very good pedigree. His last name was Holland. It was <laughs> William Holland. Um, and l- let me find my little, uh, little summary statement here. Where'd he go? 
So this is William Hollins talking about what happened when he reads the preface to Luther's commentary on the epistle of Galatians. So it's like the gospel of Galatians filtered through Martin Luther and then in the preface of the commentary. And he says as he read it, it's the first time in his life that it clicked for him, the Christian faith. There came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I tread upon. There is power. There is dynamite in the gospel. John Wesley, just a few days later in the same group of people, Again, with Luther's preface to the commentary of Galatians, he says, and this you might maybe even heard of, these are the famous words of John Wesley from his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And of course, It's all coming from Martin Luther who could talk about the gospel in such a way because of his own experience going from agitation agitation to being settled. Do you know this about Martin Luther? He was a monk, Catholic monk, and teacher of theology before the gospel actually really clicked in his life. This is a description of him. So often did the young monk go to confession that the confessor admonished him to stop it until he had something really sinful to confess. But Luther was always worried, since the agitation, always worried that he had forgotten to confess something, some possibly sinful thought, motive, or deed. And this is the mentality that is described that he had. The general belief was that God, although God is merciful, and tell me if you don't hear little overtones of the letter to Galatians, although God is merciful and Christ has died for the sins of the world, the responsibility of the sinner is to act on behalf of his own soul by rigorous self-examination, by good works and self-denial, by prayer and pious exercises. God is willing to forgive the sinner, but there are conditions which must be met and which lie within the power of the sinner to perform. Above all, the sinner must be truly contrite and must make a sincere and complete confession. And eventually, Luther has this experience that he describes this way. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words in Romans which say, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteousness lives by a gift of God, namely faith. And this is the meaning The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel. Namely, and this is one of his favorite phrases, the passive righteousness, not active. The passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who who through faith is righteous shall live. He says, here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There, a totally other face of the entire Scripture showed itself to me. A scholar of Scripture, already a professor of Scripture, saying this aha moment changed even how he read the Bible and the Scripture that he had so diligently already taught. 
And it's all because of what he describes as this unique view of righteousness that Christians have. He says Christian righteousness is different from all other kinds of righteousness. Now I'm reading from his preface. But this most excellent righteousness, that of faith I mean, which God imputes to us through Christ without works, it is quite the opposite of active righteousness. That is to say it is passive, whereas all the others that you might pursue are active. We do nothing in this matter. We give nothing to God, but simply receive and allow someone else to work in us. That is God. Therefore, it seems to me that this righteousness of faith or Christian righteousness can well be called passive righteousness. He says, Thus I abandon all active righteousness, both of my own and of God's law, and embrace only that passive righteousness that is the righteousness of grace and mercy and forgiveness of sins. I rest only on that righteousness. That is the righteousness of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. And I love how his, he's, got a, he's got a tenderness to people like those people I already described who are going to read this and hear this. He says, therefore, when I see a person who is bruised enough already being oppressed with the law, terrified with sin and thirsting for comfort, it is time for me to remove the law and active righteousness from their sight and set before them by the gospel, the Christian and passive righteousness. I love that. And so others have talked about Luther's own commentary on the book of Galatians as something that is... Um, uh, John, John Bunyan... Uh, from Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote, it's most fit for a wounded conscience. Anybody got a wounded conscience this morning? Maybe from religious uh, background that you have. It's most fit for a wounded conscience. Someone else said, it's a treatise most strengthening to all afflicted consciences. And let me just end by what Luther, how he describes it himself. He describes the gospel as like, like dry like a dry, drought-tormented field. We're in a drought, so we can resonate. It's like a drought-tormented field. And nobody in the right man, mind would say, well, the problem is that field needs to get up there and generate some rain to come down on the clouds. Martin Luther says this, just as earth does not generate rain and cannot of itself work to produce it, but receives it by the mere gift of God from above, so, this, earth, this heavenly righteousness is given us by God without our working for or deserving it. If you're agitating, if you're unsettled, you need this message to make its way in and to settle you. What's your agitation? And are you thirsty? Are you like a dry, drought-tormented ground? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? For something finally to arrive that you know you've longed for and maybe you've been using other things to chase after. Are you thirsty? Don't for a second think that you can generate what you need on your own. What, what can dry ground do but just wait and receive the grace that is so abundantly poured out when it rains? Let us pray. God, the gospel is a tricky thing that you have complete control over even to make the penny drop in our own lives. 
So as we sit here in different places needing your grace, today whether we come, and our experience is a non-religious one, and we've just been chasing after things and agitating in non-church ways, in non-religious ways, and maybe we're getting a sense and a hint that we're here for a reason this morning to finally question all that agitation and wonder if there might actually be a settled place that we can find ourselves. And maybe others of us have just been in religiosity mode, agitating, agitating, working, always in doubt, never assured. And for all of us, wherever we find ourselves today, may you increasingly open up for us what it means that you have, that you have settled all things on the cross. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.